0: About a month ago, I was here out in front of 444 at the building next door. I had a meeting and I was waiting for a couple people to arrive. It was only around six o'clock, but you know what it's like in January. It's dark by 4.30, quarter to five. So I was outside kind of just looking around, people watching the buses going by and everyone up and down the streets. And I noticed that between 444 and 450, there was a lady of, in her late 50s, and she was obviously a street person. I, I didn't want to necessarily lock eyes. That's our first reaction, isn't it? We, we don't want to lock eyes because we're afraid something's going to happen. But it happened anyways because she saw me, and all of a sudden, the, the muttering, the, 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 the things that she was just doing with her hands and standing there, it, she just focused on me, and she started yelling, <laughs> She started cursing. She started saying things. I had no idea what she was saying, but it was obvious that uh, she was suffering from some type of uh, mental issue, and perhaps even uh, on drugs. I don't know. But she was erratic and clearly angry. <laughs> I was, to tell you the truth, a little bit afraid, because you never know what kind of hap- what thing happens when, when you have somebody in uh, all of those uh, elements coming together. The reality is, is every year there are more and more people living on the streets who have serious mental issues. There are more and more people that are addicted to the the drugs that, you know, 30 years ago we would never have thought of. How dangerous meth, fentanyl, the opioids, and re- it's, it's coming to epidemic proportions, isn't it? Uh, if you've been at the church for any length of time, I'm sure that as you've gone out and, and got your bubble tea or your lunch or whatever, you've seen one of those people on the street. They'll go walking up and down, and then all of a sudden, they'll stop and start yelling at somebody in the middle of everything. Have You ever seen that? I've seen that just over here. <laughs> and and all of a sudden, it, it's, it just feels like, it, it looks like they're possessed. How t- Did you react? How would you have reacted when Jesus comes into the temple and shares the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? So how would you have reacted if you had been there that day in that very scene that Virginia just read for us in chapter 1 of Mark? I mean, Jesus comes into the temple. His preaching is is different. It's new. It's vibrant. It's powerful. People are stunned by what he has to say. And, And then immediately, a man who is obviously possessed by a demon comes and speaks to Jesus. We don't know if everyone heard or not, but Jesus casts him out with a simple word. Now, let me be clear, there is a clear difference between talking about troubled people on the streets, downtown Toronto, mental illness and and drug addictions. Because what we see here in Mark chapter one, we're told very specifically, this is demon possession. So this is not what we would see outside here this morning. But it does raise a challenge for us. How do we differentiate between the two? What's the difference? I mean, our world would just say, well, what you understand as what happened in the Bible is simply the problem of psychosis or problems of people today. It's nothing more than that. And that's why it's important for us to, to think about what's going on, that the first thing that Mark records in the ministry of the life of Jesus is the healing of this demon. Or sorry, the, the exorcism of this demon from this man, and these are the questions that we're going to get to this morning. What's different here, and, and why do we need to understand it that way? Do we have the PowerPoint? Great, thank you. I'm just going to leave it there for now. Now, last week we we saw how uh, Jesus calls the first four disciples. They're they're simple fishermen. But he promises them that he's going to train them he's going to show them what it means to be fishers of men so they're to walk with him we we also saw that they are representative of us their calling the lessons that they learn as we read through the gospel of mark are lessons that we need to understand and appropriate for ourselves because we too are disciples of christ So that's the backdrop of of where we're coming, we're moving into this with the understanding that these first four disciples are walking with Christ. And he immediately, as they get to this this small town of Capernaum, he goes into the temple and he preaches with great authority. Now Capernaum is is a large town, maybe even a small city, It's on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And the interesting thing about it, it is about as far away from Jerusalem as you can get and still stay within the province of Galilee. This is the place, Capernaum, where it's going to be his home base for the rest of his life, for his ministry. This is going to be the center of his ministry. It's about as far away again as you can get, but that means that for Christ, he can teach and he can preach without the, the, the political leaders, without the religious leaders breathing down his neck. And as soon as he arrives, they immediately go to that synagogue and preach. Mark doesn't tell us the exact content of the sermon, but we know from verse 14, it must include at least this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When they heard these words, the people, they weren't simply amazed, as our ESV translation says. They were dumbstruck. They were in shock. They were in panic. They'd never heard anyone preach like this before. They were dumbstruck because The teaching in the synagogues was done by laymen, people like yourselves. You'd come to church, and you'd get up, and you'd stand there, and you'd share something. They had no formal training. But beyond that, the teaching that you got in the synagogues was simply someone would read a text, and then they would remind you, oh, well, Rabbi Halal says this, or this is how we understand this in in a specific tradition of the law. There was never a new interpretation. There was never a divine understanding. It was simply regurgitating what some of the other rabbis would say. So they were dumbstruck by that, but they were also dumbstruck by the simple reality of how profound, how authoritative the message was. This could only come from God. This was... A message that had an authority to it that demanded a personal reaction to it. Not simply sitting in a class and taking notes. They were in shock, in panic, because if the kingdom of God has now come, and if it's representative in Jesus Christ, then judgment was right behind. Now, Jesus didn't show any of the conventional training of any of the rabbis. Yet he spoke with such gravity, he spoke with such wisdom, such understanding, such spiritual simplicity, such wisdom, such knowledge, such authority that it literally shocked them. It took their breath away. It forced them to to deal with the understanding of sin, their, their need of a savior, because there is an imminent judgment that's coming. Now, as far as we can tell, it seems that as soon as Jesus had finished this sermon, a man comes up to him, who is demon-possessed. And he's overwhelmed. If you read the English, you might just want to read it with a, with a, a normal tone. But this demon is yelling. It's shrieking. He says, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know that you are the holy one of God. And so there is this pushback. He recognizes that Jesus is the holy one of God. He recognizes that Jesus is the one who has just defeated Satan in the wilderness. And if the kingdom of God is truly coming, if the kingdom of God is now standing before him, then judgment is coming upon him even now. Now, notice that he says us. What do you have to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? And this is not simply one demon speaking. He, he's speaking as a representative. There is a, a legion here. So Mark's saying, this is, again, this is not a one-off. This is a power encounter between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God represented in Jesus Christ and the kingdom of Satan now represented in this demon. The demon recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, even if the people can't, and he knows that the kingdom of God has now come. He is very aware that he's up against a superior power, and and the simple fact that that it's a superior power, we we look at that, and and, and Jesus doesn't have to do anything but speak. There's no incantations. There's no techniques, there's no props. He simply says, shut up and come out of him. And as much as the demon may not have wanted to, he had no choice but to obey. As we read these verses, we can't help but see the display of power and authority in Jesus' teaching and in his rulership over the spirits. That's the whole purpose of this. To see the authority of Christ. It was a lesson that everyone in the synagogue couldn't help but notice to have that authoritative preaching and then have this demon come out shrieking. It was also probably the first, most all important lesson that the disciples had to now learn the kingdom of God has come. Even in this little backwater corner of Capernaum, it's coming. It's calling men and women to faith, to repentance. It is a proof and a sign that Jesus has indeed defeated Satan in the wilderness. It is a sign that the kingdom of God not only has come, but is now starting to roll back the kingdom of Satan. And it will continue to do so until God's plans are fulfilled. No wonder the news and the fame of everything that they saw that day spread throughout the land. This it's really powerful stuff. Now, the idea that someone can be demon-possessed or under the control of a demon, of an evil spirit, it's, it's something that's known in the Old Testament. Virginia read 1 Samuel 16. That is a place where we actually learn very specifically that the evil spirit was sent by God to torment the king. But this is the only reference I know of in the Old Testament that speaks of someone actually being possessed. When we come to the New Testament, we see it in the book of Acts and we see it in the Gospels. But in in the book of Acts, I would contend and I would just say that demon possession happens several times, but we get the impression that as you read through the book of Acts that there is a strong uh, influence at the beginning, but by the end of it, It's not that prominent. So uh, if we take the Bible as a whole, Old Testament and New Testament, what we do see is that the time of Jesus Christ, there is an explosion of demon possession that Jesus encounters and comes across. Everywhere he goes, he finds people whose lives are ruined by these evil spirits who possess them. And although the Bible doesn't actually tell us anything explicitly, I think it's pretty reasonable to assume that there's at least one good reason why this happens, why there is this proliferation of demon possession at the time of Jesus Christ, and and really nowhere else in in the Bible. And that is that God has allowed the demons to have real and visible impact in the world so that as Jesus Christ comes, he not only demonstrates his authority, but it affirms the power and the coming of the kingdom of God. In in other words, for that brief moment, at least God is pulling back the curtain between the physical world and the spiritual world and allowing the spiritual world to, to invade so that as Jesus comes, The healing, the the miracles, the casting out of demons are proof positive that Jesus is the Messiah. Isn't that exactly what the people there in Capernaum that day said? (laughs) That man, or this man, has authority even over the demons. Surely he's the son of God. Look at the authority he has over the spirit world. No one has ever had that before. So it, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that in our world today, you share this account with somebody, and, and what are they going to say? <laughs> a man demon possessed, demon cast out, or Jesus cast out the demon with a simple word? They're going to see it as superstition. They're going to see it as make-believe. You know, they'll say, they'll, they'll look at the story and say, it's nothing more than what you see on the streets today. It's nothing more than severe mental issues. You know, doesn't matter what the Bible clearly says. You Christians must be crazy. It's an act of faith. There's nothing about it that's proof that there was ever a demon possession or that Jesus said these things. So I'm not going to believe it. It shouldn't surprise us that our neighbor, our co-worker, the people of our neighborhood, our school friends and, and they hear about these things if we ever have a chance to talk about Jesus and the miracles they'll they'll hear about this and they'll say what are you talking about because they're simply a product of our culture aren't they a, a, a worldview that we would call naturalistic now naturalistic and a naturalistic worldview means simply this they're There is no personal God. There's no demons. There's no spiritual world. Naturalism rejects the idea of the supernatural, anything to do with miracles. It says the only thing that we know and can be assured of and guaranteed of is what we can physically touch, the nature, the the matter around us. And that matter functions according to physical laws, and we can measure those. So unless we can actually measure it, unless we can see it, unless we can touch it and prove it scientifically, it's not to be trusted. It it just doesn't never existed. And that's going to be the reaction we get from people as we share this. Problem is that how can anyone ever prove the reality of a spirit world, of demons, of devils, It's beyond our comprehension, our perception. We can't touch it. Even more, it falls short, this idea of naturalism. It falls short of answering any of the the true questions that make us human. Naturalism has glaring problems. It can't account for human personality. It can't account for consciousness. It can't account for morality. It can't tell us why we, as individuals, have an understanding of our own significance in the world or what is right and what is wrong. It can't tell us anything about human freedom or even about why certain things give us pleasure and joy in this world. It's unable to do any of that. So we have a real problem with our worldview around us in which not only are unsaved friends and family from, but in a real sense, we are still products of that. Because I'm going to say out front, no matter how much we say we know that there is a spiritual world, no matter how much we know that there's a devil and there's a demon, I don't know if it's truly gripped our hearts. Because I think if it did would have bigger concerns on our, on our plate than simply what kind of car I'm going to buy. What kind of job I'm going to look after or seek after. So we have the, the problem of the spiritual world, but we need to also understand that the Bible doesn't really give us a lot of details about the spiritual world and about the devil and demons in particular. It, it's, a, it's a subject that's mysterious, that's cloaked from us. Think about the things that we don't know about the text this morning. What don't these words tell us? Well, how did this man become possessed? What did it mean that he was possessed? How did that possession affect him? Here's one. If he was possessed by the demons and the people in the synagogue knew that, how did they even allow him into the synagogue? How how was he a part of their fellowship? Where did the demon go after he fled from the man? What was the man's life after? We don't know any of these details. The one thing that we are sure of is that Mark is not interested in giving us a whole lot of glorious details about this spiritual world around us. and, And so that we get fixated on that. He wants us to see Jesus, and he wants us to see the authority Christ has over this unknown or unseen spiritual world around us. We know from other places in the Bible that the spirit world does exist. We know from other places in the Bible that spirits exist, but not only that, that evil spirits exist. Satan is real. And he has demons. There is an antichrist. There are many antichrists. And we know that there was for at least some time recorded in the word of God. A time when God allowed these spirits to possess people. Now as Christians we believe these things because the word of God tells us. And there are actually some churches, some denominations, who have trained pastors who specialize in demon possession. Some of these churches are simply a little more charismatic than when we are in our understanding of theology. Some of these churches, we would say they're not even evangelical. They're kind of out to lunch. There are some churches that we would actually say are just heretical. They see demons and the devil behind every rock and crevice. If you'd been a Christian, or if you, if you have been a Christian for any length of time, I'm sure you've heard of some of the weird and wonderful things that you've heard have happened in churches in the name of Christ. But what we have here in Mark chapter 1, it's a plain, straightforward eyewitness it, it, it tells us about a supernatural reality, a power encounter, but there's no embellishment. There's no emphasis on the fantastic. So there's a world of difference between what often goes on in the church out there in and in the understanding of exorcisms and demon possession and what the Bible says actually occurred. What so often happens today Happens within the church walls. And it happens supposedly for the edification of those who are already believers or already supposedly followers. But when we see demon possession in the New Testament, and when we see exorcisms by Christ, it shocks everyone, believers and unbelievers alike. It is so out of this realm of knowledge and understanding, everyone is aghast, is shocked. The the exorcisms of Jesus were demonstrations of power that stunned everyone. They were afraid by what they saw. And because of that, no matter how hard the enemies of Christ would try to, to put a new spin on this, everyone had to actually concede that these were indeed miracles. Here in Mark chapter 1, the account of the exorcism is designed to demonstrate the authority and the power of Christ. That as we read about this man, God, Jesus Christ, as we see him ministering, we come face to face with the supernatural. And because of that, we must never dumb down the gospel The gospel is supernatural. No matter what our world around us will want to say, will want to argue, it is the story of a miracle. How God became flesh. He lived amongst us. He died in our place, taking our sins upon himself. And then he rose again from the grave and ascended into heaven. If we try to leave out the miraculous, There is no good news because Jesus Christ himself is supernatural. And that's a good thing for us to remember. As we engage with people around us, we can't explain some of these things. All we do is by faith demonstrate this is the power of Christ that is in me. And I think that's important, especially for you university people, Because you are in the hotbed of learning of this naturalism. Everything that you're studying is fact-based. It's science-based. If you can't touch it, you don't believe it. (laughs) And I think that's probably also one of the reasons why we have such a large drop-off of faith as people go to university. They're challenged by the world around us, by the philosophy of our culture. And they have no answer. I want to encourage you, you cannot take the miraculous out of the gospel. There is no good news without it. Without the miracles, the New Testament would simply be the story of a holy man who came and lived long ago. And you know what? Many people may find that easy to believe in our world, but the challenge is, what benefit is believing it then, if it's not miraculous? What we see is, a supernatural aspect of the gospel, it, in that it is a spiritual situation of all people in the world. It reveals the true reality of our lives, of our uh, spiritual warfare that's going on around us. We do have an enemy of our soul. There are forces at work in this world far greater far stronger, far more numerous than ourselves. And and you know what? They're bent on usurping God's place of worship in the hearts of men and women in the world, including Christians, if if they can get away with it. Because we have such a powerful enemy who is arrayed against us with this, this evil army, how can anyone not take life more seriously than simply what we can touch and see? How can anyone not take a moment and examine themselves and say, if there is a spiritual world, where does that leave me? So uh, imagine yourself again for a moment in that synagogue on that morning when Christ came. If you had been there, And heard Jesus preach, if you had heard that powerful call to repentance, if you had seen a a demon possessed man come up to him, if you had heard the conversation between this man and and this demon uh, in Jesus Christ, and if you heard Jesus simply say, shut up and get out, Would you not realize that there is more to life, more to the physical world around you than what you can simply see? That's exactly what happened. And then, once your eyes have been opened to that truth, would you not begin to see the world differently? Recognizing that behind the the great movements of this world, Satan and his minions are at work. Would you not start to connect the dots and think the evil that we see in this world, the ugliness, the famine, the wars, the atrocities, the cruelty, can can we not start to say there must be a demonic reality behind all that? Here's the thing. In the Gospels, demons are one of the greatest demonstrations of the reality and the power of evil and sin. Sin when it's unconstrained by the grace of God. When the devil actually takes control of a life in the New Testament, he doesn't bless, does he? He he never has the, the, the desire to make someone's life better. He destroys it. He makes it miserable. He gives them... Despair, So it's overwhelming that they actually go out and they live by themselves and many of them try to harm themselves. No, it, it, There's no one ever in the Bible who is thankful that they were possessed by a demon. Think of it this way. Demons and the devil are persons that we can read about, that we see, in which sin has come to full flower. That's why demons have to disguise themselves as angels of light. If we ever got a glimpse of anyone in the world, Hindu, Buddhist, doesn't matter, if anyone ever got a glimpse of the true hatred, of the evil that was them, they would flee in terror. You know, I remember before I was a Christian, and I'm sure there's lots of examples you can give me too, of people joking about going to hell, (laughs) And the problem is they don't understand what hell is. It's not simply a separation from God. It is that. But it's an understanding that that soul has gotten as evil as it could be. The restraints of God have been taken off. You know, there are people in the world, the most evil people you can think, can still know love, can still have compassion, they can still know beauty. But a soul that has actually got to the point of being assigned eternal damnation is a soul that does not know love. There is no beauty. There is only sin, and and sin has got to the point where it is as sinful as it could be. The grace of God constrains our sin. None of us are as evil as we could be, and yet... After that judgment, that place of eternity is a place where our soul will be as evil as it could be. And if that's where it's going to be. There will be no love, no friendships, no joy, no beauty. Simply evil. It is a place where men and women become morally and spiritually like The demons, only full of evil, not knowing or having any good. That's a tough thing to think about. The the, the spirit-possessed man we have here in chapter 1 of Mark was already in hell. Think of it this way. He was already in hell as far as anyone alive could ever be because this demon had so possessed him and had total control over his life. His life was a living hell. And that's what makes this account so marvelous for us. Jesus came into the world. He speaks with authority. And he delivers the man from a power that he had no control over. What was impossible for the man to do himself was not only possible for Jesus Christ. It was easy. All Jesus said was, shut up and get out. And the demon fled. This is the same in in the situation of demon possession in all of the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Whenever we see Jesus actually encountering a demon and, and exercising, he does it effortlessly. The demons are always outmatched. And that's the breathtaking practical effect for us. This demonstration of the authority of Christ over evil, it was effortless. It was complete. As we read the account it can we can easily get distracted by oh there, there's a spiritual world we can we can get preoccupied with running down rabbit holes and and, and understanding uh, beyond what scripture says uh, of, of what it may or may not be but that's not mark's purpose here mark's saying I, I want you to know one thing this is a revelation of who jesus christ is this is a proof that he is the messiah And what makes it more exciting, what makes it more remarkable is that this comes from the mouth of whom? From the demon himself. I know that you are the Holy One of God. This Jesus has the power over the forces of darkness. And he will use it, as we see in the months to come, to free people from darkness and from their sin. As powerful as the demon was, as impotent and powerless as the man was, as evil of an intention that the demon had toward them, Jesus was far, far greater. These forces of evil, they're they're too great for us. But they're not too great for Jesus Christ. And what a great comfort that is. What greater comfort can there be for us if we know that there is a spirit world going on around us, that we know that there is an enemy arrayed against us to know that the authority and the power of Jesus Christ not only has already broken the back of Satan, but is rolling back the kingdom of God, and that as God's people, by faith, we walk and we trust. If there weren't demons, I think our lives would be bad enough because we we come to an understanding that I'm a sinner saved by grace. I I have no hope of doing anything to glorify God. I have no hope of saving myself. But here's the thing. If there is an evil evil spiritual kingdom at work, if there is a devil... And if his desire is to wage spiritual warfare on the church, then we have a real problem because we're helpless. We have no power, no authority over such things. The supernatural aspect of the Bible, it should be for us this morning a wake-up call that There is a world that we are helpless without Jesus Christ. There is a spiritual battle going on around us, a battle that is far greater than simply my struggle to find happiness, to find fulfillment in this world. There is this army against us, an army so strong that we need a champion, someone who is able to deliver us from this enemy, somebody who is far greater than the enemy. Well, that champion is Jesus Christ. And so for those who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior this morning, I think the important thing to grasp is to to understand that you are helpless before this evil spiritual world that the Bible tells us does exist. Yes, you sin. Yeah, yeah you're, you're like the rest of it. You struggle to do well to glorify God. But there is this enemy out there who desires your soul. But you know what? He's already defeated Satan. He's already, over the cross, brought uh, the ability to, to know God and to be in right relationship. All we have to do is receive him as our Lord and Savior. So I, I pray that even if you're not totally convicted of your sinfulness before a holy God, the very fact that there is a spirit world out there that desires to do you harm will draw you to Jesus Christ, because he has already defeated Satan. And as we've seen this morning, that power and authority has been demonstrated over the spirit world. I think it's important for us who are already disciples of Jesus Christ who are walking, because again, we are still products of this naturalism. No matter how much we try, you're probably going to go back this afternoon and, and not really grasp the depth and the evilness of this kingdom that's arrayed against us. And if we don't, we're not going to flee to Christ, we're not going to seek refuge in Him. And here's the thing. I, I, I'm sure that there are many of us who are struggling with, with various sins in our lives, whether they be pornography or gaming or whatever it may be. Jesus is our champion. He has defeated Christ. He has the power of God in the cross, not only to bring you to spiritual life, but to continue to lead you in the way, in the path of righteousness. And so we need to cling to Christ. And in understanding afresh, and praying perhaps even this afternoon for the first time, Lord, help me understand my place in Christ before this evil kingdom. Now, I think, personally, I think there's a reason why the devil doesn't possess people these days, why their demon possession is not that common why it's not out there all over the place and they're saying look at us look at us look at the power we have worship us and that's because the strength of the kingdom of darkness is in deception why would you say that and 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 know that you have been defeated every time that the word of god comes against you what they don't want is a power encounter because the gospel is always going to win if The true nature of who they are and their desire to rule over us, if that is made known, then the gospel would be easy to engage with people because they would see beyond the physical. They would see that there are spiritual things that they have no control, no understanding of, and people would receive the gospel. So Satan is insidious. He is silent. He's secretive. He's disguised as an angel of light. And as he is all of this, he's able to continue to turn hearts away from God to worship him. Now, every one of us has problems, big and large, in our life. But if we truly understand how small they are in reality, the spirit world around us and who we are in Christ, I think we would understand, perhaps for the first time, how powerless we are and how desperately we need Jesus Christ, not just once, but every day. Thankfully, there is one who is able to answer all of our problems. There is someone who has the problem Solved for sin and for guilt. Someone has solved the problem of of our separation from God. Someone has solved the problem of spiritual death. There is one who has authority and power to deliver us from all of the, the basic and fundamental problems of our existence. As spiritual and as supernatural as those problems are. Because he himself is supernatural. And that is Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning that the Lord impress upon us this one thing. Let us pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father. Oh, forgive us for coming with such passion, with such zeal, and then allowing it to wane by not diligently seeking the realities of the spiritual world around us, the wonderful truths of the kingdom of God, and how you call us to be disciples, those who seek after holiness and godliness in our life. We thank you for your truth this morning. May it continue to resound throughout the rest of the day. In Christ's precious name, amen. Well, this morning, I don't have the props up. (laughs) But they were just props, the bread and the cup. But we are having communion. I, I want us to think about this this morning. This is a remembrance. But this is something that is given to us that has a supernatural element to it. Because as the people of God meet, the spirit is here. Working in the hearts of every one of us. Some of us to bring us to faith in Jesus Christ. Others to strengthen what has become weak and succumb to sin in our life. That we are his and he is mine. So please take a moment. Examine your hearts. And I'll come and pray in a minute.